You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at hopehullumc.org slash sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. Every now and then, someone will get it the bright idea that they can predict the day that Jesus will come back. It happens every now and then. Uh, One attempt came just a few years back when a fellow predicted that on May 21st, 2011, he didn't say what time, just May 21st, 2011, Jesus was coming back. You may remember that. If you don't, he got it wrong. And uh, he went back to the charts and back to his work And he came back a few days later, a little while later, and let everyone know that he had made a mathematical error. It was actually October 21st, 2011. Get ready. It's coming. Well, October 21st came and went with no significant events. And we're still waiting for Jesus to come back. Christian hope for the future, theories of the end times, can easily get saddled with a lot of unfounded speculation, a lot of sensationalism, and let's just say it, sometimes a lot of craziness. Absolutely crazy stuff happens. Now that can motivate some people to dive right into the craziness, And it motivates other peoples to take a step back and just ignore the whole topic altogether because it's so confusing and really, honestly, so scary that we're really not sure what to do with it, so we just put it on the shelf and don't worry about it. The problem with that is, if you read through the New Testament, language and talk about the second coming of Jesus is all over the place. We'll talk about a few of those passages briefly in just a minute. But the thing to realize is that if we read the Bible, and if we're going to be Bible people, if we're going to be people who love Jesus and offer ourselves to Him and submit ourselves to His Word and the Scriptures and the way they reveal Him and reveal His mind and reveal His best, we can't ignore this kind of end times topic, future, second coming, what's going to happen when Jesus comes back. If we want to be Bible people, we can't avoid it. It's all over the place. When it comes to the New Testament, however, the focus on the second coming of Jesus is never about predictions. It's never about guessing the date or the time. Instead, When the New Testament starts talking about the second coming of Jesus, the day of the Lord, as Paul refers to it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, when the New Testament starts talking about the day of the Lord, it doesn't talk about predictions, it talks about holiness, morality, ethics, behavior, community life. Preparations are to be made, but they don't involve stockpiling non-perishables. They do involve offering ourselves to Jesus 
at deeper and deeper levels. The second coming in the Bible is about holiness. And that's why for Paul, 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 to 11, when he talks about the end times, the last day, he, he wants them to understand that if you want to be ready for the second coming of Jesus, you've got to live each day like it's the last day. It's the bottom line for Paul here. Live each day like it's the last day. Now he said, there's a lot of talk in the New Testament about the second coming of Jesus. Paul's already mentioned it in 1 Thessalonians. At the end of chapter 4, he talks about, uh, in verse 15, For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord. So Paul expects some people at that time, he didn't, I mean, he's not doing timeline kinds of things, so maybe Jesus will come back while Paul's alive. Didn't work out that way. Maybe Jesus will come back during our lifetimes. We're not going to speculate about that. Maybe Jesus will come back in 5,000 years. We don't know. But some people will be around when Jesus comes back, and so Paul describes that. Some who will be left with the coming of the Lord won't perceive those who have died. And he goes on to explain how Jesus is going to return. Verse 16, For the Lord Himself, with a cry of command, with the archangels call, with the sound of God's trumpet, will descend from heaven, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So there's this image of Jesus coming with all the stops pulled. right? Royal appearing of Jesus. Archangels trumpets, shouting, God's call, all of these things, and everyone will see Jesus, and it will be marked by the resurrection of the dead. That's what we can expect, he says. He describes it in, in, in chapter 5, the passage we just read. You yourselves know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And he goes on in the rest of the passage to describe it. comes up in Acts chapter 1. Or as soon as Jesus ascends to the right hand of God the Father Almighty, King of all things, exalted ruler of heaven and earth, as soon as he disappears from the disciples' sight, some angels come along and say, hey, why are you staring off into the sky? He's going to come back just like you saw him go. Second coming, Jesus will return. 1 Corinthians 15 is all about the second coming of Jesus, particularly how Jesus will raise the dead at His coming. And Paul says specifically in 15.23, Since death came through a human being, the resurrection of the dead has also come through a human being. All die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, so Jesus came the first time, died and was raised. And then, at His coming, there's that, those who are in Christ. So again, the emphasis is on the resurrection at the coming of Christ. He came the first time and he was raised from the dead. He will come the second time and you'll be raised from the dead. See how that works? Second Peter chapter 3. We're not going to go through every reference in the New Testament. Just these three. Second Peter chapter 3, 9 through 10. Peter describes the delay of the return of Jesus. So you can kind of get a sense how in that first period, you've got some folks like Paul who are saying, hey, you never know, it could be any day. And then you've got some folks like Peter who maybe it's a little bit later, and he say, well, it could be any day, but it seems like it's taking a little longer than we expected. <laughs> uh, but maybe that's an expression of God's patience. He doesn't want anyone to perish. So Peter says, Jesus is coming, but the delay is an expression of God's mercy and grace. 
So, the second coming is consistently held out as our hope throughout the New Testament. It is worth a quick note that this is one of the places where early Christianity begins to uh, adjust what the Jewish expectations were. Many Jews in the first century expected a Messiah, a rescuer, to come and liberate them from oppression under the Roman Empire. What they did not expect was for the Messiah to come, die, be raised from the dead, leave for a couple thousand years, and come back later. <laughs> that was new. They didn't really have a category for that. But once Jesus died and was raised and ascended to the throne of heaven, they began to work through it. They were instructed, and they began to see, okay, there's another, the hope is coming. Jesus will return. And again, the point is not to go into crazy mode. The point is to be always surrendered to Jesus so that when He shows up, you will be found faithful. So this is all over the New Testament. What can we expect? I would say, if you want to be able to answer the question, what can we expect about Jesus' second coming, there are two things to remember. Number one, maybe you already know, resurrection. Like The chief event associated with the second coming of Jesus 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 15, Romans 8, 2 Corinthians 4 and 5, all over the place is the resurrection of believers. Jesus returns to raise the dead. So number one, when Jesus comes back, he'll raise the dead. Number two, he's going to bring the fullness of the kingdom. That's expressed in the new creation. When all that God has made is set free from bondage to decay. That's the emphasis in Romans 8. The emphasis in 1 Thessalonians 5 is on um, judgment, isn't it? Believers will be judged faithful, and unbelievers will not. That's an expression of the kingdom, isn't it? The kingdom is about justice, redemption, full salvation, freedom from bondage to decay, and judgment, isn't it? So one of the ways we remember this in our house, uh, Vivian and I came up with this a couple of years ago, a little Q&A, we like to do questions and answers. And so uh, wanting my kids not to get sucked into the eschatological end times craziness, we came up with a Q&A about the second coming of Jesus. And so I would say, uh, Vivian and I started it, the other kids know it now, I think. What's Jesus going to do when he comes back? And the answer is, two R's, it's a little alliteration, helps you remember it. Raise the dead and rule forever. So let's, I want to try it out, though, see if you guys are as sharp as the kids. What's Jesus going to do when he comes back? And that's enough, isn't it? Like that's, all you got, that's really all you've got to worry about. Resurrection and kingdom. A king who vindicates his people, raises his people, brings his people to their full experience of his saving love. And a king who, set, king who sets things right, who defeats his enemies, who pronounces the final judgment on the powers that seek to destroy his good creation, liberates his good creation from the power of sin, from futility, from decay. 
What's Jesus going to do when he comes back? Raise the dead and rule forever. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, which we heard from last week, is about the first one, the resurrection. 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 11 is about the second one. Different ways that Jesus expresses his eternal kingship. So that's what we can expect. Jesus Christ will come to judge the living and the dead, and of his kingdom there will be no end. That's from the creeds. Or Jesus will come to raise the dead and rule forever. Now, a lot of people experience fear when it comes to the second coming. I remember when I was a kid trying to read, uh, maybe an adolescent, trying to read through Revelation. I didn't want to do it at night because it was so scary. Uh, there were so many just like crazy things attached to it, and people were writing books, and the books were kind of sensational and fantastical, and there were beasts, and there were plagues, and there were you know tribulations and wrath and all this kind of stuff. And for me, as a as a, an adolescent, it was just a fearful thing. I didn't want to read it at night. I remember having that thought. But if you read through the New Testament again, the word to believers about the second coming is not fear, it's hope. It's not fear, it's hope. People get sucked into the speculation, they get sucked into the Hollywood. Like, listen friends, if you want to know about the second coming of Jesus, don't go to the movies. Go to the Bible. <laughs> we get sucked into this kind of sensationalist Hollywood uh, let's get as crazy as we can so we can sell more books and we get pulled into that and it's misrepresentative and it's scary and it's not very biblical if you set the two down beside one another instead we don't ignore it because of all the unhelpful things associated with it, but we do prepare for it. In the New Testament, the second coming isn't something to be afraid of. It's not something to be avoided. It is something to be prepared for. You don't prepare for it by stockpiling non-perishables, right? In a count, in, off the grid in a cave in the mountains somewhere, which, you know, some people do. Instead, you prepare for the second coming by deeper and deeper surrender to Jesus. The word for that is holiness. And Paul expresses that in three ways that should be familiar to us in verse 8. Faith, hope, and love. How do you prepare for the second coming of Jesus? Faith, hope, and love. The first two are really an expression of trust, aren't they? Faith is trust in Jesus. We're going to trust that the Lord is good, that He's faithful to His people, that He's coming back for us and for the world. To make it new, to redeem it, to renew it, to set it free, to liberate His people from corruption, from death, from all these things. We trust Him with that hope. Faith, hope. And what does that mean for the way we live now? It means we embody His character. And what's the word for that in the Bible? Love. Faith, hope, love. How do you live for the last day? Faith, hope, love. How do you prepare for the second coming of Jesus? Faith, hope, love. Trust Jesus and embody his character. 
trust Jesus, surrender yourself to the work he wants to do in you. Now, Paul is really good about mixing his metaphors. It's one of my favorite things about the apostle. I can just kind of imagine him sitting over his writing desk and he's, he's going along and, and he's talking about the resurrection at the end of chapter 4. He didn't have chapters. We added those later, but you get the idea. So you've got the resurrection. He's talking about it and he's, just, he's on this high. And if you think about you know, you can just sort of imagine how he's caught up in the letter. He's like, this we declare to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will by no means precede those who have died. For the Lord himself, with a cry of command, with the archangel's call, the sound of God's trumpet will descend from heaven. The dead in Christ will rise first. We who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together in the clouds to meet him, the Lord in the air. Encourage one another. We'll be with Jesus forever. Encourage one another with these words. You can just hear this excitement and this energy in his voice. And I can imagine him sitting over his desk writing this out or dictating it to the secretary who's writing it out. Paul did that a number of times, we know. And then he kind of slides into chapter 5. We've talked about the resurrection. Let's talk about how this is going to work out for different groups of people. Verse, chapter 5, verse 1. Concerning the times and seasons, brothers and sisters, you don't need to have anything written to you. You yourselves know the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. There's the first one. First metaphor, thief in the night. So don't go to sleep. Stay awake. And don't get drunk. <laughs> be sober. Because it's going to be like a woman giving birth. <laughs> it's like, Paul, can we do it one at a time, please? <laughs> you know, how do we chart this out? You know, is it about drunkenness, childbirth, or you know, not setting the alarm clock too late? Kind of I mean, what's going on here? Help us out. But you could just sit this is this urgency for Paul. This matters. He cares about it. And he wants the Thessalonians to give themselves to the Lord who is coming and not just kind of sit back and pretend, well, it's not really important, so we don't have to pay attention to it, or it's too scary, so we can avoid it. No, he wants them to be engaged in their hope because it's who they are. They're a people of hope. People of the day. That's how he describes them. That's an identity thing, isn't it? It's in uh, verse 4. You, beloved, are not in darkness for that day to surprise you like a thief. You are children of light and children of the day. That's identity language. Right? Typically in the Old Testament. <laughs> Isaac, son of Abraham. Your identity is marked by who your parents are. You're a child. That child, that's your family. And Paul grabs that family language and he loads it into this. The family of God are the children of the day. And what's the day? It's the day of Christ's return. And days are marked by sunrises. You're children of the light. And why is it important that Paul attaches identity language? Because your identity shapes your behavior doesn't it? Our identity shapes our behavior. I remember when uh, I first kind of got into ministry candidacy. Started dressing like I thought a preacher ought to dress. Some of you go, why don't you still do that? <laughs> uh, <laughs> but that sense of identity, this, this, is a, this is the group I'm in, this is the part of people I'm going to behave, I'm going to speak, I'm going to act, I'm going to dress, I'm going to pick out my wardrobe based on the way that this group of, this identity thing, right? We see it in our kids, don't we? 
They run with a certain group of other students. And maybe they want the kind of things or shoes or clothes or whatever like that group of people. Grown-ups do it too. We behave in ways that accord with our identity. So what does it look like? What does life look like for children of the day, the day of Christ's return? What does life look like for children of the light? Well, you know one thing. It looks different, Paul wants us to see, than children of darkness. That's where he goes next. You're children of the light, children of the day. We are not of the night, not children of the night. We are not children of the darkness. He reemphasizes this in verse 8. Let us be sober. Or we, or he says in verse 8, we belong to the day. Again, there's that ownership. There's that identity. And he uses this contrast between day, the day of the Lord, and night and darkness to highlight this is who you are. And he says, like, the character of those who are, belong to the night is drowsiness and drunkenness. And if that's where you are, you will not be ready for Jesus when he shows up. They're dozing off. They're asleep. They don't have their wits. They're toasted. And Paul draws in these metaphors to highlight the way that the people of God and everyone else approach the future. He wants the people of God to be discerning and wise and paying attention. Focused on the return of Jesus because that shapes the way they live. So what does it look like to live for the last day? What does it look like to have a life marked by faith, hope, and love? Verse 9, God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us. So that whether we are awake or asleep, here, awake is alive and asleep is dead. Remember earlier or in the letter, chapter 4, sleep was a metaphor for death. Again, Paul mixes these things up. You've got to kind of trace it through. Follow his line of thought. Whether we're living or dead, we may live with him when he comes through the resurrection. What does it look like to live every day like it's the last day? Hold on to the gospel. Love the gospel. God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. The gospel permeates this letter. Earlier, when he's encouraging the Thessalonians with the hope for resurrection, Christ died and was raised. Therefore, when we die, we'll be raised. That's the gospel. The gospel defines their hope. The gospel insists resurrection is coming. It's true for Jesus. It's going to be true for you because the elder brother shares everything he's got with his, with his brothers and sisters. Love the gospel. Talk about the gospel. Who is Jesus? He's the God-man. He's fully God. He's fully human. 
And that's absolutely necessary so that he can take God and humanity and bring us together. Because if he were just God, he wouldn't be able to get all the way to us. And if he were just human, he wouldn't be able to get us to God. That's who he is. God in the flesh. And what has he done? He's manifest his perfect love. He's come to us while we were enemies. And he said, yes, you've run from me. You've held me at arm's length. You've rebelled, but I love you. Not for what you've done, just because I do. So he died for us. Because the wages of sin are death. He says, I'm going to take the consequences of your rebellion on me. And when I get done, there won't be any consequences left for you. So if you want to love the gospel, remember those two questions. Who is Jesus and what has he done? He's perfectly God and perfectly human so that he can bring God and humanity together. And he does that by offering himself to pay the penalty for our sin so that we can be forgiven and so that we can be raised from the dead when he returns. You want to live each day like it's the last day? Love the gospel. It is our hope. Be able to articulate. If you have trouble articulating it, like go home this afternoon and take half a sheet of paper. Some of you have done this before. Take half a sheet of paper and just answer those two questions. Who is Jesus and what has he done? And don't go past the half sheet of paper. That's all you get. It's a word limit on this one. If you want to be, if you want to be able to elevate or pitch that bad boy, if you want to be able to kind of... Keep it short, clear. Nobody's asking for a systematic theology textbook. We just need the gospel. Paul does it in one sentence. Christ died. Christ was raised. Christ will come again. Believe in Jesus. Flesh that out. What's going on there? Who is he? What has he done? Why does it matter? Practice it until you can do it just like that. That's how you love the gospel. That's how you love the gospel. What does it look like to live each day like it's the last day? Every day, surrender yourself to Jesus. This is the holiness part. That comes up every week, it seems like. <laughs> it's a big theme in First Thessalonians. It's a big theme in the whole Bible. Uh, when I'm talking to uh, colleagues about holiness, we will often remark that holiness isn't one series that you preach during the year. It's the, it's the goal of every sermon every week. And when Methodists are at their best, that's what we put out front. It's what Jesus wants to do. That's the movement from night to day, from dark to light. That's the shift in identity from people who are resisting Jesus to people who are thoroughly surrendered to him. So in the morning, am I going to get up and say, all right, Lord Jesus, I belong to you today. I trust you, faith, to give me what I need to honor you with my life today, hope, so that I can embody your character, love. Imagine what life would be like if every day was like that. But that's not how it works out often, is it? 
you know, because we snooze the alarm clock and then we're late for getting the kids ready and it's hectic. I saw some, some of you shared this on Facebook. We saw this article this week that you put in a full work day just screaming at your kids every morning, right? Like that's the kind of energy that goes into that. It's like eight hours of stress. Like you clocked in all day long trying to get the sandwiches made and the coffee poured and somebody spilled oatmeal or something like that, right? We start our days with hectic anxiety instead of willful surrender to the Lord. So the next time we're going snooze, maybe we should just surrender the snooze button to Jesus. That's tough for me. I'm just going to be honest. (laughs) Pursue holiness. If you want to live each day like it's the last day, understand that Jesus wants to produce his life in you. That's his primary goal. He wants to magnify his holy love in your body. 1 Thessalonians is about that all the way through. Then the third thing, we're applying this. What does it look like to live each day like it's the last day? Number three, missional urgency right because there's a lot of children of darkness out there i know that doesn't sound very pc it's kind of exclusive isn't it (laughs) but if we want to take the bible seriously we have to take the reality of hell seriously if we want to take the bible seriously we have to take the reality of the wrath of god seriously and the wrath of god is not Well, I remember how my dad used to take his belt off and wail into me behind the woodshed when I was a kid, and that was pretty wrathful, and the wrath of God just must be like that blown up to infinite proportions. That's not, that is not what the Bible means when it talks about the wrath of God. When Paul uses that language, God destined us not for wrath, but for obtaining salvation. When he talks about the wrath of God, that's not what he means. What he means is God's good, righteous, considered, measured opposition to all that opposes the goodness of his creation. All the way back to the garden, sin sneaks in in an effort to destroy what God has said is good. And if he's going to be faithful to what he said is good, he's going to go after the thing that's coming after with the good, isn't he? When the New Testament talks about God's wrath, it's about God defending what he loves. Which is you. And which is the world. Unfortunately, some people consistently align themselves with that which opposes what God loves. And when we give ourselves to that, we give ourselves to his wrath. Again, not a popular topic. But part of the missional urgency in the New Testament is the reality that there are a lot of people out there who don't know Jesus. And when Paul talks about the resurrection, he talks about the resurrection of those who belong to Jesus, doesn't he? He says, for those who are outside of that, who worship, who give what belongs to God to idols, the worship that belongs to God, who give it to idols, he says the consequence 
is destruction. Verse 3. And wrath. Thank God for that delay that Peter talked about. His patience is an expression of his grace. My hope is that that's an aspect of his character we'll be able to embody. And it's tough on Monday, because people might think you're crazy if you go talking about Jesus. You might sound kind of judgmental. Try not to. You might sound kind of exclusive. Somebody might call you a bigot. The question is, when Jesus comes back, how do you want to be found? You want to be found catering to the fears of your, what people might think about you or faithful to the Lord who has redeemed you? Do you want to be found asleep or awake? You want to be found drunk or sober? Resisting Jesus or offering yourself to him? Live each day like it's the last day. You've been listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hole United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this message, consider sharing it with a few friends. Remember to visit us at hopeholeumc.org sermons and subscribe to get notified when new content is posted. Thanks for listening.